Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Amen. I love, love, love that song. I hope it was an encouragement uh, to you as well. I want to take a second and welcome you to church, whether you're joining us around the city, around the country, or even around the world. We're so glad uh, that you're here with us. I'm Pastor Matt, and I've been at Bible Center Church now. This is my fifth year. I grew up here in Charleston, West Virginia. We would love, I would love to meet you next time you're here, next time we're actually able to gather together. We're not sure yet when that is, uh, but we're listening to the CDC. We're following our our, uh, government leaders, but whenever that is, I would love to to meet you in person and get to know you and welcome you into our church family. Until then, though, there are several ways that we can connect. One of those ways is through our website. At the top of our website at BibleCenterChurch.com, you can click on the New Here tab. And under New Here, there's a number of opportunities to connect. You can join a Zoom group. You can sign up to join a Zoom group. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're looking for a connection like most of us are. That's a great way to do it. You can also submit a prayer request, submit a need. Uh, But another thing you can do under the New Here tab is actually today, when I finish this message, uh, I'm going to go to my computer and you and I can have an audio conference. We can do a a video chat, whatever you would choose to do. It's all right there under the new here tab. Another way to connect is at the bottom of our website. If you scroll all the way down, you're going to see subscribe, uh, the pastor's all church email. I would love to get your email address and I promise we're not going to sell it to anybody. We're not going to give it to anybody, but I would love to once a week put a an email in your inbox that just lets you know what's going on in our church family, what's going on in my heart. It's a relatively short email now, um, but usually our folks get that about 50 weeks a year. I send that out midweek. Feel free to sign up for that today so we can stay in contact with you. We're gonna go ahead and dive into our message. I would invite you to take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, If you're new to church or if you're new to the Bible, that's in the the second half of the Bible we call the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the second book. I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark, but the words uh, will also be on the screen. We're going to continue a series this morning entitled The Final Word on Fear. The Final Word on Fear. And we're going through the the Gospel of Mark, looking at multiple instances of when Jesus calmed someone's fears. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to actually tell one of those stories, one of those true stories, and then I'm going to give you one big idea from that story. Today's message is very simple, but I invite you to take notes along the way. Again, I'm going to share one story about how Jesus calms our fears and then give us one big idea to remember. Let's go ahead and jump into the story. Mark chapter 5 and verse 21, Mark 5, 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Now, what lake are we talking about here? Well, we're actually talking about the Sea of Galilee. It's so large that it's often referred to as a sea, but technically it's a lake. And in my opinion, it's one of the the most beautiful spots on planet Earth. Uh, I've said a couple of times that a few of us from the church were there back in February, and we just confirmed this week the dates for us to go back to Israel, Lord willing, in 2022. It'll be from May 31st through June 10th, 
2022. Pastor Ted Tanzi and I will be leading that group. We would love for you uh, to be connected to uh, uh, that trip, to come along with us. So go ahead and put that in the back of your minds. Uh, but much of what we'll see will be in and around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has been on the eastern side of the lake. And then in Mark chapter five, he, he comes across the lake by boat to the western side of the lake, probably to the town of Capernaum. And whenever he gets on shore, he's immediately just, he's thronged with this group, this crowd who wants something from him. This is relatively early in his ministry. And so the crowd is starting to hear that Jesus heals diseases and people are coming out of the woodwork every time they see Jesus asking him to either heal themselves or someone that they love. Just imagine today if a physician, let's just say he or she had the, the cure to COVID-19. Think about how many people would wanna be at their office, how many people would be knocking on their door. That's what Jesus experienced over and over again. In verse 22, verse 22, it says, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, what is a synagogue leader? Uh, this is us and our culture, but to help you kind of help us translate it into Jewish culture, a synagogue leader was someone who was like an administrator over the synagogue. It would be like taking a mayor and a pastor and a, a maintenance director and wrapping them all up into one. And his name was Jairus. He was highly respected. People in this position of a synagogue leader were very high, were highly respected. But when he sees Jesus, he throws his dignity out the window. He falls at Jesus's feet. Now that's the position of begging. What in the world is, is this man's burden? Why is he falling at Jesus's feet? Well, let's see in verse 23. It says, he pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. My little daughter is dying. Please come up and, and put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. Now it makes sense. Now we understand why he was begging Jesus to come to his house, why he got on his knees begging Jesus to do something because his daughter was near the point of death. It would be like us saying that she was in ICU and she had taken a turn for the worse. Maybe I'm speaking to a parent or a grandparent. Maybe you've been there at some point in your life. Or, or maybe it's not a child. Maybe it's, maybe it's another relative, but, but there's something special about parents' love and burdens for their children. We will almost do anything. I would say we would do anything to help our children through times of suffering. The hard reality, the hard reality of parenting is reads something like this. You can do your best and still stand where Jairus stood. You can protect your children, pray for your children, keep all the boogeyman at bay and still find yourself in an emergency room at midnight. You can still find yourself in the cancer ward. You can still find yourself in the drug rehab clinic on a visitor Sunday. Just because we're, we're Christians, just because we wanna follow Jesus doesn't mean that we're exempt from these type of burdens. And so this was on Jairus's heart. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him. A large crowd of people followed and pressed around him. 
Now, just think about those words, Jesus went with him. What does that tell us about the character of Jesus? Jesus loved people. Jesus wasn't aloof from people. Jesus didn't stand back and just wanna work magic, but away from the people. Jesus loved being with people. But as he goes and he follows Jairus to his house, a crowd follows Jesus. And before long, they're not just following Jesus, but they're pressing around Jesus, making it difficult to get from point A to point B. And so Jairus is, is no doubt somewhat, some, at least concerned, are this, is this crowd gonna slow us down? Will this crowd keep Jesus from getting to my daughter? But something's about to happen that Jairus doesn't expect, the disciples don't expect, and, and no doubt it's gonna it's going to create even more anxiety in Jairus' heart. Look with me in verse 25. As they're walking on their way to the little girl's house, it says, and a woman was there on the road who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and she spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he, and he asked, who touched my clothes? Now, Jesus knew who touched his clothes, but he asked anyway. You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? In other words, with all these people just rubbing shoulders with you, why are you asking who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, telling him or told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I wanna invite you to put yourself in Jairus' shoes for just a minute. Just imagine that your child is uh, hours, maybe minutes from death. You don't know how long your child has. And Jesus is starting to get slowed down by a crowd, but then all of a sudden he stops and he, he has this exchange with this sick woman. Now we love people, no doubt you love people, but if your child is sick, you're probably not gonna be happy. I'm gonna be livid, right? I'm gonna be thinking, does Jesus not care about my daughter? Why in the world is he stopping to help this woman? How is a grown woman with a chronic condition getting more attention than my little girl with an acute condition? This is reckless. This is malpractice. Doesn't Jesus care? This was a powerful moment for this woman. I talked a little bit about her on Easter Sunday a couple weeks ago, but this was a very painful moment for Jairus. Because in the process of Jesus stopping and having this interaction, something happens to his daughter that we'll see in just a moment. I wonder if you can relate to Jairus's pain. Have you ever wondered if God was purposely delaying the answer to your prayers? 
Have you ever asked God over and over again for something and you felt as though God was taking his good old time, giving you an answer and it, it was creating fear, it was creating worry, maybe even anxiety in your heart. Can you relate to how Jairus must have felt? The thing about fear is that fear turns us all into storytellers. Fear turns us all into storytellers. In other words, in this vacuum of truth, in our moments of fear, sometimes we, we can tell ourselves stories like Jairus may have done. We don't know what was on his mind. But if he did this, if he said, doesn't Jesus care? Maybe Jesus doesn't care about me. Maybe I'm not important to Jesus. What he was doing was telling himself a story. You see, fear turns us all into storytellers. I'll use a lighthearted example from, from maybe uh, something that someone's going through, but it certainly isn't the most severe. Uh, but just imagine that during this pandemic, during this COVID-19 pandemic, let's just say that you're a parent or you know a parent who's worried uh, because they, their wages have been cut or maybe they're wondering if they're gonna be able to afford braces for their child. This is how fear would tell a story we would begin to think to ourselves, well, if I can't afford braces for my child, my child's gonna have crooked teeth. And if my child has crooked teeth and they're gonna grow up and they're not gonna have any friends. And if they're, if they're not gonna have any friends, they're probably not gonna be socially adjusted and, and they might have IQ, but they're not gonna have EQ and they won't be able to get a job. And if they can't get a job, they're never gonna establish a career. And if they never establish a career, then they're gonna have to live with me forever and I'm gonna have to support them forever. And they're going to hate me one day when I'm dead. You see what happens there? We, we, we begin to tell ourselves a story, something that starts with maybe a legitimate concern, but we go two, three, four, 10, 20 steps down the road and we create an ending that may never happen. I use that lighthearted example, but I am sure that there are some heavy things on your heart right now as you listen to this message something much heavier than whether or not uh, you're gonna get your children braces this year or next year. No doubt I'm speaking to someone and you feel as though your future, everything about your future may be in the balance. It keeps you up at night. Maybe your children's future you feel really is in the balance because of this pandemic. I mean, our kids have missed an entire semester of school. Think of the impact that's gonna have on our schools. Think, I was talking earlier today about the impact that's having on our teachers. Our teachers love their students, right? Think of the impact it's gonna have on the students, the impact that it's already had on parents. Parents having to stay home and, and maybe they've had other responsibilities, but they've gotta make sure, we've gotta make sure our children get the education that they need. Or maybe for you, the story you're, you're telling yourself surrounds a question like this. What if I get sued in this pandemic? What if I lose my company? What if I can't pay my employees? What if I take a pay cut? What if they have to take a pay cut? Uh, why is this crisis taking so long? God, where are you in all of this? You see, even before this crisis, even before the pandemic, Many of us were really good about creating stories driven by fear. People who are driven by fear, maybe in your workplace, they begin to think that everyone's against them. Everybody's against me. My coworkers don't like me. People are out to ruin me. People don't appreciate me. And even if none of that's true, people who are driven by fear, they begin to have self-fulfilling prophecies. 
they think it's so, and so it, it almost becomes so in their life. Fear turns us all into storytellers. We become sure of what the future does and does not hold. One thing I've learned when I've walked through seasons like this, and I'm not exempt just because I'm a pastor, but one thing I've learned when I've walked through seasons like this is this, is that this idea of fear, we're tempted to believe the worst about God when life seems to be falling apart. It's tempting to believe the worst about God when life seems to be falling apart. So that's where we are in this story. How does the story end? Look with me, if you will, in verse 35. In Mark 5, 35, while Jesus was still speaking, people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? If there are any words, if, there, if a parent wants to hear any four words, it's not these four words. Your daughter is dead. Imagine as his eyes begin to fill with tears. Imagine as Jairus's soul is crushed. Any life or energy that he had in his body just seems to be sucked right out of him as he's looking at Jesus and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know what to say and he doesn't even know if Jesus cares. But in verse 36, overhearing what they said, this idea of overhearing means, it has the idea of, Ignoring Now, Jesus did hear what Jairus' friends said, but he's, he's ignoring what they said. He's kind of bypassing what they said. Jesus told him, Jesus didn't speak to the crowd. I never saw it until this week when I was studying for this message. Jesus didn't speak to the crowd. Jesus cared about this father. He spoke to him, don't be afraid, just believe. Literally, it could be translated It could be translated, stop being afraid, keep on believing. Basically, he urges this father to not listen to fear's story, but to start listening to faith's story. You see, faith is a storyteller too. Jesus or Jairus couldn't think of a logical reason to believe Jesus. He had never seen Jesus raise the dead. He didn't know that if his daughter was dead, that Jesus could come and bring her back to life. But there was something about Jesus's voice. There was something in his soul, like the blast of a fresh air on cool spring mornings, or, or as, this, as Jesus is speaking, the ice melts away from his heart, and he somehow had this gift of faith that allowed him to believe the words of Jesus, so much so that he follows Jesus to his own home. Picture Jesus taking Jairus by the arm. Maybe he put his arm around Jairus and he said, let's go. And they head off to Jairus's house. Verse 37, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. 
You say, why were they crying and wailing loudly? Was this family? Well, no doubt family was there. We're gonna find out in a moment that the mother was there. But in this particular culture, it was, it was customary for them to, in the Jewish culture, for professional mourners, professional criers, professional wailers uh, to go to someone's house when they had just died and to be there and to help facilitate the mourning. And that seems a little bit strange to us, but what I'm learning as I travel different parts of the world is that every culture has, has these beautiful customs that maybe our culture doesn't understand and, and they don't understand our customs. For instance, why do, why do we have you know, viewings the night sometimes before a funeral? Why do we conduct funerals the way we conduct them? Well, much of it is cultural. Thankfully, a lot of it's biblical, but much of it's cultural. And so they get to the house and there's these professional mourners, professional criers making a commotion. And notice what Jesus says to them. Jesus says in verse 39, he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? Now stop there for just a moment. When Jesus asks them, why are you crying? You can just picture one of them speaking up. The Bible doesn't say this, but in my imagination, I picture one of them speaking up and saying, well, well, why not? Uh, this girl just died, Jesus. I mean, of course, that's why you're here. And as a matter of fact, if you would have gotten here earlier, she might not have died. So why are you asking why? Jesus knew the answer. But Jesus told them, he said, the child is not dead, but asleep. Now you say, was, was she just in a coma? Did Jesus know something about her that no one else knew? Well, of course not. She wasn't just in a coma. She was dead. The text has already told us that she's dead. But you see, death is different for Jesus because Jesus sees the whole picture. Jesus sees the whole story. And so, so in Jesus's mind, he's using an illustration. He's using a bit of allegory or a metaphor. And the Bible often refers to death this way, that it's simply sleep. But to this family, she was dead. In verse 40, notice what happens. They, the mourners, the professional mourners, laughed at Jesus. It wouldn't be the first time somebody laughs at Jesus and it won't be the last time someone laughs at Jesus. And after he'd put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and they went in where the child was. Those words put them all out. It's very forceful language. Uh, it doesn't mean that Jesus politely asked. It doesn't tell us how he put them all out, but he insisted everybody leave that room except the father and the mother, Peter, James, and John, and him and the little girl. So there were seven of, seven of them in the room. I love it that he allowed the mom and dad to stay for multiple reasons, that's wise and good, but it just shows us something about the compassionate heart of God for parents who are suffering. Again, when we think about parents who are suffering, sometimes we parents, we beat ourselves up. It's even happening during this quarantine, during this pandemic, we're, we're beating ourselves up because maybe we're, we're, we, we think that we're not doing a good enough job that someone else is doing. And I believe that God wants me to speak to parents for a moment and, and encourage you, there's no such thing as a perfect mom or a perfect dad other than God. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. As a matter of fact, this summer, we're gonna go through the book of Exodus and we're gonna find out that God was the perfect father to his children. There were millions of them going through the wilderness 
and they continually complain. They continually whine and they continually rebel. And so if God's a perfect father and, ha and has had rebellious children, then certainly he knows and cares for you. Maybe in the worst case scenario, you're a parent and you've actually buried a child. You've buried, I've not buried a child. My brother died of cancer, so my parents have buried a child. I've never buried a child and I hope I never have to. It's not supposed to be that way. But if you've buried a child, I wanna encourage you with this. God knows how you feel because God has buried a child too. On Good Friday, 2000 years ago, God saw his son die on a cross, a cruel death, and God buried a child. So picture the emotion, all of that love and emotion bound up in Jesus in this room. And notice what happens in verse 41. In verse 41, it says, he, Jesus, took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Now there's so much tenderness in this verse. One, Jesus took her by the hand. Jesus didn't have to touch her. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament uh, would forbid, forbade a priest to, to touch a dead body. Jesus could have been considered defiled for touching a dead body. Uh, but thankfully, he didn't touch a dead body. He touched someone that you can just imagine as his hand reaches for hers, at some point, she comes back to life. Jesus resurrects her from the dead. In this phrase, Talitha kum, this isn't, a, this isn't a wizard's incantation. These aren't magical words, uh, but these are actually a, the language that Jesus spoke around his house was Aramaic. And so Mark, John Mark, the writer of the gospel of Mark is being a good biographer. And, and in the original, most of the gospel of Mark is written in Greek. But when he got to this part as a good biographer, he included this in Aramaic to show how accurate Peter's story as, as it was relayed to him really was. So these are the exact words that Jesus would have said. This idea of Talitha, my wife and I have had the privilege of working in, in our churches and in children's ministry. And we've, we've, we've met a several girls named Talitha. It's a beautiful name. Talitha means uh, sweetie, sweetheart. It means honey. It's just a term of endearment. It can mean little lamb. It's the way fathers would talk to their daughters. Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Jesus looks right at her and he says, rise. Rise from death. Jesus raised her from the dead. Verse 42, it says immediately, not two hours later, not three days later, but immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Picture as she gets up and she hugs her parents and maybe she runs around the room and, and she's looking at herself and she realizes that I'm alive again. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And everybody there, Peter, James, and John, the mother, the father, they're all astonished. Remember when Jesus told Jairus to have faith? You say, what is faith? This story defines for us what faith is. Faith is believing that Jesus is writing a better story than you can imagine. What is faith? Faith is believing that Jesus is writing a better story than you can imagine. 
You see, it seemed to Jairus and the disciples that Jesus was delaying. It seemed to them that Jesus was just not caring. But you see, Jairus didn't have all the information. The disciples couldn't see the big picture. They were seeing life in 2D, two-dimensional, but Jesus was seeing it from three-dimensional. To use a different illustration, they were seeing it in real time, but Jesus was seeing it from a bird's eye view. They were seeing it only a chapter at a time, but Jesus could see the whole story. And Christian, I wanna encourage you today that wherever, whatever chapter you're in of life, if this particular chapter of life seems hard, it seems difficult, it seems impossible, maybe even soul crushing, I wanna remind you that Jesus sees the big picture even when you can't. You see, God sees the whole story and faith is believing that Jesus is writing a better story than you can imagine. God never promised us an easy life, but he did promise us as his followers that everything would work out eventually, either in this life or the life to come, it would work out for our good and for his glory. Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight and verse 28, we know that in all things, not some things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Think about that for a minute. What is God's goal in your life? Is God's goal for you and your family to make you happy? I would say that's a, that's a byproduct, that's a gift from God, but that's not the ultimate goal. According to Romans 8, the ultimate goal of God for his children is to create us into the image of Jesus. And so for our entire lives, he just chips away and chips away until more of Jesus can be seen through us and in us. Joseph in the Old Testament, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Joseph is a big character. And I love what Joseph said. His brothers had mistreated him. His brothers had abused him. And Joseph said this, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God wasn't the one that sinned against Joseph. There's this whole discussion of direct agency and indirect agency. His brothers were the ones who sinned against him. God doesn't sin against anybody, but indirectly as the sovereign God, God orchestrated everything for Joseph's good. And then you've got Job. Job said in Job 23.10, God knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. If you read the end of the book of Job, you'll find that God gave everything back to Job and so much more. Now, there, a question that I've sometimes been asked is, well, what about Job's children? You see, Job's children died. Job lost his health. Job lost his wealth. Job lost the support of his wife. And then by the end of the book, God gives him more children. God gives him exponentially more wealth and even better health than he had before. And so sympathetically, I, I can resonate with that question. Why would Job be so happy? Because even though God gave him more children, his original children, group of kids did die. But you know, Job has been in heaven for the last 4,000 years. And I'm sure that if we can interview Job, who's likely been in heaven with his children for the last 4,000 years, Job probably hasn't thought much 
about that day, but has been in the bliss and the joy of his savior for 4,000 years. And so Job would still say, though God slays me, I will trust in him. Faith is believing that Jesus is writing a better story than you can imagine. Maybe you're at a time of your life where this particular chapter seems dark to you and you're kind of wondering how in the world is this gonna fit in with, with, with your story? You're willing to accept, you're willing to believe the Bible, but you're still wondering exactly how you can make sense of all of it. Uh, one way to make sense of it is through the, the, the Phantom of the Opera. Many of you saw Phantom of the Opera. It was on YouTube this week for free. And a number of you I saw on social media were watching it. My wife and I went to see an off-Broadway version of Phantom of the Opera in Louisville about four years ago. And, and as we're there, uh, you know, there were some scenes that were really dark. So just imagine that you're, you're watching the Phantom of the Opera and you've got someone who's never seen it with you. And let's just say you get up and you leave at intermission. You leave halfway through. And you ask that person, hey, how did you like the story? Most likely they're going to tell you, well, I didn't really like it at all. As a matter of fact, it was dark. Uh, it was gloomy. Uh, it was a terrible story. You see, you can't judge a good story by its darkest chapter. In order to truly measure a good story, you have to see it all the way through to the end. And today, Christian, do not measure your life by its darkest chapter, but see it all the way through to the end. God is doing something. And faith, true faith, is believing that Jesus is writing a better story than you can imagine. Now, there was one verse in this chapter that I haven't read, and I wanna close by reading this verse. It's verse 43. And I saved this verse on purpose to the end because, uh, well, if I were gonna end this story, I would have ended it a little differently. I would have told the story about how the girl gets up, she runs out of the house and all the people who laughed at Jesus, you know, they, they realized they had egg on their face. They realized that they shouldn't have made fun of Jesus, something like that. But that's not how Jesus ends the story. He says in verse 43, Mark writes, Jesus, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And they told them to give her something to eat. I can understand the last part of that verse, Jesus telling them to give her something to eat, because you see, Jesus was concerned for the whole person. He was concerned for uh, the person's spiritual well-being as well as their physical well-being. Even when Jesus rose from the grave, he still ate. So Jesus understands the importance of someone's physical nature. But this first part is hard for us to understand. Why would Jesus tell them not to tell anybody? But I do believe that the first part of this verse, though it's hard to understand, is the key to understanding this story. And it's the key to understanding the pandemic we're currently in. You see, there's a greater need than healing people from disease. There's a greater need than bringing somebody temporarily back from the grave. You see, even this little girl, though Jesus raised her from the dead, she died again. Lazarus, we find in the book of John later, Jesus would raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Well, Lazarus didn't live forever on earth. Lazarus died again. 
And so Jesus was trying to, to get this point across. Don't tell anybody about this miracle because they're gonna think that's the primary purpose for my coming. That's the primary purpose for my coming. And Jesus wanted them to know there was another purpose. There was an even greater purpose for his coming and it hadn't happened yet, but it was about to happen. Within two or three years, Jesus would go to a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And though Jesus was perfect and though Jesus had never sinned and though Jesus had never done anything like you and I have done, never a wick entertaining a wicked thought, never doing an evil deed, never hurting a brother or a sister, never being selfish, more selfish than the people around, never doing any of those things. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. Jesus died on the cross to save us from an eternity apart from God. This is greater than saving us from disease. Jesus saved us from the root of our disease. Jesus saved us from sin, death, and hell itself. That's why Jesus came. And Jesus didn't want people thinking that he was just a, a miracle factory. Jesus came to save us from something greater from our sin. I'm so thankful that's not the end of the story. But the Bible tells us Jesus on the third day rose from the grave. Jesus conquered hell itself. Jesus conquered death. Jesus rose from the grave on Easter morning. Uh, and it says in Mark chapter 16 and verse six, do not be afraid. You have come seeking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. When we were in Israel, I had to take a picture of this. For this verse says, he is not here. He is risen. Faith is believing the whole story. It's believing that Jesus is writing a better story than you can imagine. And so today, wherever you are, whatever you've done, I wanna encourage you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Let me pray for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, wherever you are, I, I invite you to pray this prayer with me right there in your living room, right there in your house. Would you, would you pray this with me and mean it from the bottom of your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I believe you love me. I believe you created me and you sent Jesus to save me. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he arose from the dead the third day. Come into my life and save me. Transform me and take me to heaven when I die. I want Jesus to be my Lord. Wherever you are, where however you prayed that prayer, I pray today that we as a church can help you follow Jesus now that you've made that decision. I'll be praying for you this week. I'm available. I'd love to reach out and connect. God bless you. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.